the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Climate change is materializing in various ways across the national park system. Houses have been falling into the Atlantic Ocean at Cape Hatteras National Seashore as a result of sea level rise and shifting of the barrier island itself. Wildfires have been raging through Sequoia, Yosemite, and Lassen Volcanic National Parks, just to name three units impacted by fire. And flooding has unexpectedly become a major force at Yellowstone National Park. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. It's been just about two months since catastrophic floods hit the northern portion of Yellowstone, and the recovery efforts are continuing, and will continue for quite a few years, in the case of rebuilding the north and northeast entrance roads. We'll be back in a minute with Yellowstone Superintendent Cam Sholley to get the latest on the recovery work. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at EvergladesFoundation.org. Okay, we're back now with Cam Shiley, Yellowstone Superintendent. Cam, how are you doing? Uh, it's been a long seven weeks, Kurt, but uh, the team here is doing pretty well overall. They've done a great job, and uh, I feel a lot better right now than I did seven weeks ago. Yeah, I bet. But, you know, climate change has been part of the national vernacular for more than three decades now. Um, there has been talk about how it could make Yellowstone warmer, reduce your snowpack, and even lead to more wildfires. But has flooding on the scale the park witnessed in June ever been part of those expectations? Yellowstone hasn't flooded that much. So I, I think it's a it's an example of even if we think uh, climate change impacts aren't going to happen in certain areas, uh, they're very possible. And uh, so it's more of a matter of of when, not if. And it's, it's important that we incorporate that into all of our thinking as we as we move forward into the second century and i think that we've come a long way in regards to how we look at climate change there's no question we have the data and the science uh to support that those changes are occurring uh those changes have been accelerated in in many areas they're higher impacting in in many ways 
um, how we respond, understand that data and science, and then how we take more substantive actions to understand what we need to do to adapt to those changes and to predict them and defend the system in a better way, I think is going to be our challenges moving forward. And I guess it's it's really a moving target that you're dealing with, no? Well, I think it's, if you look at a lot of the infrastructure in the national park system, I mean, it, most of it in, in most areas, whether it's transportation, you know, roads or uh, structures or whatever the case is put into place long before climate change was really in the forefront of, of any of our, our conversations over the past hundred years or more. And so I think the, the question is how do we protect uh, the resources that we have, the infrastructure that we have, uh, how do we guard against future uh, climate change events? And then how do we, how do we build for more resiliency in, into the future? And so we have opportunities to redesign roads or, you know, rebuild infrastructure. Are we doing the best that we can to uh, understand what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future and adjusting those investments accordingly? Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible challenge. Now, um, as we mentioned, it's been almost two months since uh, the flooding event occurred. You've made pretty great progress in, in recovery efforts. I mean, um, bring us up to date on where things stand. Well, I can't say enough about the team here, just like teams across the national park system, some of the best performing groups of people uh, I've ever seen in my life. And uh, one of them is right here in Yellowstone. I think, uh, you know, considering what we were thinking that morning, we woke up on, on Monday, the, the 13th and the damage that we observed and the task in front of us, we've come a long way in just, just, just over seven weeks. I mean, we've got 93% of the park operational, about 94% of the backcountry open. We've got visitation levels that are around 30 to 40% less as far as traffic volume than in 2019. Uh, but the three entrances we do have open, you know, east entrance, south and west, are starting to creep back to normal entrance levels, but the park-wide volume is, is still down substantially. And we have two very incredible gateway communities still largely cut off from the park. We're working very hard to uh, reconnect those two communities, Gardner and uh, Cook City. We think we're gonna have that accomplished by October 15th for temporary passability between, between those two corridors. And then we're working on what the long-term solution uh, needs to be and needs to look like. And that gets back to the conversation on climate resiliency. You know, if you looked at this as an opportunity, uh, what do you want to see in regard to, we know there needs to be road connections between the communities and the Northeast entrance and the North entrance here. Uh, what should those look like and how do we make the right decisions now? And this, in this point in time, we have some opportunity to rebuild and do it in a way that's a smart investment that's, you know, the least environmentally impacting, you know, in certain areas I've seen, uh, we might even be able to get some environmental gains if we realign the roads in certain corridors. How do we build for some resiliency? So what are the areas maybe that weren't washed out that may be vulnerable to future flood events? And do we take mm -hmm. advantage of reconstruction in these corridors to make sure that 
you know, we're checking those boxes at the same time, trying to do it as quickly as we can and as cost effectively as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as the north entrance, I know you're um, upgrading the old Gardner stage road to be able to to handle some traffic. I, I don't expect it will be um, the, the same as the north entrance road when it was fully functional, but you're, you're making great progress there now. Yeah, I mean, that's a 1879 stagecoach road that we're really glad was there. So it was a single track or a single lane dirt road. Three days after the flood was impassable still. Uh, the Park Service road crews here put around 20,000 tons of material on it uh, within two weeks to get it to where we could have at least one-way traffic back and forth for essential services and employees. And keep in mind, we have well over 100 employees that live in Gardner. So trying to get those employees up into up into the park, and especially as we were trying to go operational again, that, that connection is super important. And then we've, Federal Highways has been a great partner. Uh, we've got a great contractor on it. They've already two-laned about half of it. And, uh, you know, uh, winter comes early here. So we've got, you know, probably six weeks to eight weeks of decent weather, of predictable decent weather. To finish the job. Our expectation is that visitors will, uh, there may be some length restrictions, but our visitors will largely be able to pass back and forth on that temporary route until we have a permanent solution in place. Yeah, that's good to hear. What about the Northeast Entrance Road? I guess that's a little bit more challenging because I don't think you have any stage roads um, that you can turn to. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that section, we had five sections that were affected. We have one section that's if people are familiar with Trout Lake, which is kind of between Lamar, Soda View Creek and uh, Pebble Creek, that, you know, we lost somewhere around 700 feet, both lanes gone, very steep slopes. River was rechanneled where the road used to be, not a very obvious, you know, here in, for the north entrance, we had an obvious temporary solution to start working on immediately there. In the northeast corridor, we've got four or five individual majorly damaged sections that need their own plans and design and things like that. Uh, Oftedal Construction, which is a large Montana-based uh, construction uh, company, was awarded the contract from Federal Highways uh, here recently. And they're pretty confident that they can get those roads, uh, the road bases rebuilt relatively quickly in the same time frame as the old Gardner Road. Uh, frankly, if we don't get that, the old Gardner Road done, then the northeast entrance doesn't matter quite as much because uh, there'd be nowhere to drive uh, once right. they came into the park. But I'm confident both of those uh, corridors will have temporary solutions in place going into the winter, and we will have traffic traveling back and forth. If something happens, like we get the snowstorm of the century in September or something like that, some of those timelines may be skewed. But I feel pretty good at this moment that we'll get it done and then we're we're starting to work on on what the time what the different alternatives we want to evaluate and what the time frames will be and, and the cost for for long term reconstruction. With that northeast entrance road, are you um, rebuilding in the same footprint, so to speak? Yeah, the temporary solutions basically, if we're going to do it in this kind of time frame, have to be done in the same general previous road alignment. Uh, I think where there's going to be opportunity is going to be when we look at the permanent reconstruction, how do we look at, I mean, if people are familiar with the confluence of Soda Butte Creek and Lamar River, there's a section of road that's literally feet from the river. For some reason, it survived this event. 
doesn't mean it would survive future events. So would we want to obviously take an obvious section of road that's vulnerable to future flood events and and move it further away from the river? You know, that's an example of of, of some of the things we'll look at over the long term. I do want to say on the original response, people need to keep in mind that you know we had over ten thousand visitors in the park. Uh, when the floods hit, we had mul- several thousand visitors trapped in Gardner when both sides were cl- uh, cut off. The the Park Service road crews and rangers did an outstanding job of proactively closing many of these road corridors that slid before they slid. And if they hadn't done that, I'm very convinced we would have had a loss of life or or major loss of, of life uh if, if that pro those proactive measures hadn't been been taken you know we lost our wastewater line down to gardner uh here we we're the two hundred thousand gallons of wastewater flowing into the gardner river i mean the only good news about a high cubic feet per second uh was it was diffusing that wastewater very quickly uh but the wastewater crew our maintenance crews got on that wastewater fix very quickly diverted it from the river within i think you know, 36 hours or so. Power was out for close to 48 hours. We had multiple wastewater system failures throughout the park, evacuated the entire park in 36 hours, um, the North Loop and the South Loop, and did that without major injury or loss of life. That's a testament to how incredible this group is. And then for us to kind of then turn around and divide the park into, okay, where do we think we can go operational? What needs to be flood recovery? Then working with thousands of business owners and residents in these communities, Cody, West Yellowstone, others, to operationalize the Southern Loop initially and then the Northern Loop at the same time, planning on and uh, these temporary solutions and for the future longer term reconstruction. It's been a really busy seven weeks, but people can be really proud of of, of the efforts here, not only of the Park Service team, but our partners and uh, tremendous support from the states, the counties, the communities, the Department of Interior, the Secretary, the Director, can't say enough about Department of Transportation and Federal Highways. We would not be as far along as we are uh, without their support. So it's been a true team effort. And I think uh, there's a a few things we might have done differently, but generally speaking, given the complexity of of everything we're dealing with, I think we've done pretty well in, in just a short amount of time. Yeah, it really has been amazing and and watching from a a distance when you take into account the the extent of flooding and how great it was and uh, just just amazing um, initial response. And then, as you said, uh, the communities and all the stakeholders coming together. We're talking today with Yellowstone Superintendent Cam Shawley about Yellowstone's recovery from devastating floods in June. We'll be back in a minute. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. 
Join Wild Tributes for the park's community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Cam, you know, I'm wondering, the most visible damage, of course, has been to the, the north and the northeast entrance roads, um, that section of the park. Can you point to some other damage that the public might not be aware of? I mean, I heard mention that there was a patrol cabin washed downstream. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but what, what can you tell us about what folks haven't noticed in the media? Well, one of the, you know, the, the northern loop of Yellowstone was affected much more than the southern loop. And there was there was some frustration originally around once we cleared mudslides and trees and things like that off the southern loop, why didn't we just go full bull, you know, let full blown traffic come into the southern loop? We had two close calls with our wastewater systems, one at Old Faithful, one at Canyon. Those are kind of invisible to the public, but if they're not functioning, you can't host visitation. So it was critical that we kind of eased into letting visitors back in the park and made sure that our facilities could withstand something that's pretty critical, wastewater, and not overwhelm those systems too quickly and, and then get ourselves in a situation where we had to, you know, reclose the park. Uh, we also had several sections of road that were not washed out like up north, but were uh, substantially damaged, one in particular south of Canyon that Federal Highways helped us get a contractor on and we were, we fixed within days. And so we, we were able to open that south loop and, and have every, you know, the other thing people don't think about is the fact that you've got hundreds of bridges that have just gone through a substantial flood event. Every one of those bridges had to be inspected for to make sure they were safe for travel. That happened. Every single bridge in the park was inspected by Federal Highways engineers within days. But there's no question that the, the, the damage in the south was fairly quickly repairable and we were able to reopen that within eight days. Uh, we had mudslides up on Dunraven. We just finished that $30 million project. You know, most people know that Dunraven Pass was closed for 2020 and 2021. We just did the ribbon cutting in late May up there. Original evaluations of the damage were that we might have lost some of that road. Fortunately, that wasn't the case, but there were some mudslides and things that needed to be cleared. Um, but then, you know, if you just look at what we were able to do with the North, the North Loop, I and mean, we got that opened uh, just 10 days after the South Loop, and uh, we've gone about as far as we can go right now as far as opening without getting these temporary solutions in place for these two corridors. Did We did lose a backcountry cabin, the, black, the lower blacktail cabin, you know, that was kind of sitting on a, on a gravel almost not a gravel bar, but like a, a, a section very, very close to the river. Great example of where infrastructure with the right thought process around flooding and, and things like that, you probably wouldn't build again. And uh, lots of washed out trails and, and footbridges and stock bridges in the back country. Once again, most of that 
up north, um, most of the south backcountries largely unaffected by by flood. And the reason why the the damage was much more severe in the north is the hydrology of the rivers is much more violent. You know, we had two to three inches of rain, warming temperatures. We had a lot of snow in May. Uh, in fact, I think we got more snow in May than we did in January, February, and March combined. And that 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 rain and warming temperatures uh, melted about five inches of snow. And uh, you know, the cubic feet per second of the Yellowstone River, I think, was just over fifty thousand. For reference, and they're obviously not totally comparable, but if you look at Yosemite floods in '97, the Merced River was around just over ten thousand cfs. Uh, the Yellowstone was over fifty. Uh, I think Lamar was at 22,000 CFS. So we didn't see the type of, like I said, violent hydrology down south that we did up north. But when you have those kind of flows and corridors that have roads and infrastructure so close to them, we now see what the result of that is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Backcountry sections, um, you mentioned bridges being washed out in the patrol cabin. Was there an issue with a lot of down down trees? I mean, do you have to send crews out there to, to clear the trails? I mean, you've got hundreds of miles of trails in the north. Yeah, they've done a great job. Um, we've got a variety of trail crews, rangers, kind of an all-hands-on-deck. Uh, you know, one of the first things we did, we had backcountry groups that were out in, in the backcountry when the flood event happened. So it was ensuring that they were safe and if there's evacuations needed, making sure that happened. And then really focused on after we kind of got the front country damage assessments looked at really focus on what what sections of trail what bridges were were still intact uh what's the, what was the inventory of damage on um literally hundreds of miles of trails in the north and then we started kind of prioritizing what are the things we can get crews in there and get cleared what are the heaviest high use trails what are the things that you know, stock outfitters and things like that, that we want to try to regain access to where areas that we we're not going to be able to, to fix. And, you know, we do have a small percentage of the backcountry that likely won't open for a year or two. Uh, but the majority uh, is open now or will be open soon. Now, getting back to, um, to, to the road situation, um, in both those cases, the, the North Entrance Road and Northeast Entrance Road, they're going to take years to to rebuild, right? I mean, um, can you outline the process? You've got to go through NEPA. You've got to find the right um, corridors to to run them through. Um, what, what are you looking at with that? Well, if you take North Entrance Road, you know, for most people that have been up here, you know, that, that road went through the Garden River Canyon. Substantial damage in that canyon to that road. I have no no doubt that we could rebuild in that canyon and and build a structure that could be resilient to a future flood event i'm not a big fan of rebuilding to the canyon though i think restoring that canyon would be really good for a variety of of reasons uh, i think investing in that canyon i'm not being, being pre-decisional we'll we'll look at that as an alternative there there are some really steep cliffs and 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 areas that are prone to rockfall and shifting soils and I'm not so sure that you don't uh, lose the structure from above. You might be able to withstand another flood, but at some point, um, I think that canyon's vulnerable to uh, rock slides and other things that could damage the structure. So, you know, what we've asked Federal Highways and our engineering teams to look at is what are the what are the corridors that are 
potentially constructible and what are those alignments look like and and then kind of have a criteria that we will follow and obviously we'll conduct an EIS for the north entrance road uh, but what is the least environmentally impacting what is the least visually impacting where can we take advantage of infrastructure that was unaffected that uh, is not vulnerable to future climate change events what is the shortest distance all of these different factors we'll look at to try to come up with two or three main alternatives that we'll put forward in an EIS and a planning process. And um, I'm confident that we'll get through that sooner than maybe I've predicted. I've thrown out three to five years. I think there's only a couple obvious alignments that can be chosen. And, you know, I'll look to accelerate that and follow that criteria. I also think getting out of the canyon once again restoring it you could have some environmental gains in some areas at very least you would offset whatever corridor you decided to rebuild in um, but we've got a couple good ideas of of some areas that i think are going to be pretty light from an environmental impact standpoint um, visually almost invisible uh, allow us to restore the canyon and do it quicker than we might have thought that's for the north entrance for this for the northeast entrance i think um a little bit different. Uh, there's not there's not like a brand new full road. We don't want to build a 30 mile new road corridor in the northeast. So a lot of what you see in the northeast will be the same. Uh, there might be some armoring and some things that we do to the roadbed. There will be a couple areas that I mentioned earlier that are close to the river. We will look at maybe realigning and moving the road away. Those will be smaller segments. There's already a, a environmental assessment that's in that's in progress. Uh, for the Northeast Corridor because we had a plan to redo the road between Tower Junction and Northeast Entrance already. It was an unfunded project, but a lot of work and planning and design have already gone into that. So we're taking that plan and seeing which road segments need to be modified. And I'm not sure that three to five years is, that's going to probably be, because especially because you're talking about 30 miles, uh, something that's done in, in increments over time, not necessarily all at once, like what we're going to be doing here with the north entrance. We're talking today with uh, Yellowstone Superintendent Cam Shawley about rebuilding Yellowstone National Park after June's uh, devastating flooding. We'll be back in a minute. Interior Federal Credit Union's rates have jumped again. Check out their new certificate rates at interiorfcu.org. Maximize your money for the future with terms from 6 to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of just $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate one time during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or Park Store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport Program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. 
Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Cam, you've worked for the Park Service in Washington as Associate Director for Visitor and Resource Protection. You've been Director of the Park Service's Midwest region, which has 61 parks. And you've been back at Yellowstone now since 2018 and seen forest fires, gas tankers flipping over on your roads, and countless other unexpected, costly um, situations. With climate change throwing more and more challenges to the parks, does the Park Service have the financial resources to respond? Or is it something that um, it's just going to be constantly going back to Congress and asking for supplemental appropriations? Or it, would it be helpful to have a, a larger Park Service budget that the agency could proactively try and um, strengthen infrastructure in light of climate change? Well, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of questions there, Kurt. Um, I think you know everybody understands how supported the national parks are in America. Um, there's a reason why it's the greatest national park system in the world. You know, I think there's been a a lot of progress in providing additional funding for the system, especially through Great American Outdoors Act. We've had plus ups in line item construction, cyclic maintenance budget components. And those fund sources, whether it's a project funded out of Great American Outdoors Act or line item construction, uh, have to be executed through the lens of climate change adaptation and everything we've just talked about. I mean, so I don't I don't know that you want to have a separate fund per se, as much as in making sure that you're incorporating the resiliency that we need for the future into the fund sources that we already have. I think that uh, in regards to you know these these hurricanes that come through um we know there's going to be hurricanes we don't know where they're going to hit we don't know how impacting they're going to be we know there are going to be fires we don't know where they're going to hit we don't know how impacting they're going to be floods are the the same way what i what i can tell you is that the members of congress the numbers of members of congress that have moved swiftly to learn what's happened here and i know this is the case for things happening in other parks in the system you know, and, and it, the look at the responses that we've had uh, from Congress and administrations in the past on, on hurricane damage and things like that. I don't know that you can just build a fund for, for the rainy day events that are going to be coming, even though we know they're coming. So I do think it's it's more of a, you know, let's let's try to make sure that we've got the right amount of funding to make the investments that we we need to under normal circumstances and that we're building properly or rebuilding uh, properly to be resilient for the future. At the same time, let's uh, continue to communicate with the administrations in Congress to ensure that we've got the the right amount of funding for whatever emergencies uh, come our way. And, and who knows where that is in Florida or Yellowstone or Yosemite or whatever the case is. But I, I just in this, and I've obviously been involved in a lot of incidents in this agency, you know, from the secretary to the director uh, to members of Congress to, you know, the, the, the Federal Highways Administration, everybody has been wanting to learn about what happened, asking what is needed and working very closely with us to make sure that we get what we need to make not only make these repairs, but like hopefully 
strengthen our, our, our infrastructure for, uh, for the future. I believe that the Senate Appropriations Committee has drafted a bill um, to provide funding, um, not just for the Park Service, but for, for other federal land agencies um, to deal with some of these things. And I believe um, it set aside $1.67 billion to help not just Yellowstone with uh, recovering from the flooding, but to address droughts, you know, landslides, the situation up at Denali National Park with the, the Park Road. But I believe out of that $1.6 billion or $1.7 billion, $1.2 billion is aimed at Yellowstone National Park. Is that, um, you know, has your staff um, come up with preliminary estimates of what it might cost to, to rebuild the north and the northeast entrance roads? Yeah, we've worked closely with with the Washington office, the region in Denver, with the department. Um, about four weeks ago, we had our comptroller out, our associate director for facilities out here, um, the director of Western Federal Lands for the Federal Highway Administration. We had members, congressional committee members out here. We've had many congressional members out here. And we have put together, I think, uh, a range of, of estimates that will be completely satisfactory in getting the job done here uh, moving forward. And so I'm not going to comment on, on the markup. I'm, I'm really happy it's moving as quickly as it is. Uh, I'll leave that to, to Washington and the department to kind of OMB to help kind of navigate that with the Hill. But uh, a lot of people very interested in what's happened here. And like I said, have, have learned and we've given them the best information that we can in a kind of an unclear situation. And I feel like that support is going to be coming for us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, according to the, the, the current timetable, you're, you're hoping to have that uh, um, old Gardner stage road ready for more traffic than normal by um, mid-October. So um, the winter season, if people want to come to the northern part of the park, um, you anticipate things will be fairly back to normal? I do. I mean, I think there's going to be some length restrictions on the old Gardner Road. Um, I think there's going to be there's some really steep, you know, 8%, 10% grades that the contractors are working on leveling off as much as possible, but it's going to be a steeper road. You know, there may have to be some alterations when we have heavy snowstorms as far as closing that road and getting it ready to go. There's some definitely narrow sections. We'll see how it comes out. But generally speaking, I feel pretty confident going into the winter that uh, visitors will be able to come back and forth both through the north entrance and northeast entrance road October, mid-October into November in that range. Yeah, that's great to hear. And um, the wastewater lines from uh, Mammoth down to Gardner have been repaired to the point where you can have uh, the Mammoth Hotel functioning 100%? No, those lines are severed in four or five places. Um, we have about seven wastewater systems that we manage in the, in the park. Mammoth has always sent the wastewater down to the treatment facility in Gardner. And then we pay, we pay an amount every year for that. What we're doing right now is getting a, we've got a temporary fix in place, um, but we have a, a temporary plant that will come up to treat that wastewater uh, that we think will be in place in the next six to eight weeks. Uh, that'll be a short-term fix when we decide on the the long-term realignment to, uh, down to Gardner. Uh, we'll we'll most likely put that line back in place, uh, and that's going to be the cheapest and probably the best way to go on that front. So, will the the lodging facilities at Mammoth be one hundred percent, fifty percent? 
as long all. as we get the temporary wastewater system in place, uh, we should be able to reopen the hotel here in Mammoth in uh, this winter. That's great to hear. Um, I know um, people across the country are really um, interested and concerned about uh, what happened to Yellowstone and how the recovery effort's going. Yellowstone Forever has um, started a resiliency fund, I believe. Is, is that the best way if people want to contribute to the recovery plan, they can recovery operations? Is that the best way to go? Well, you know, I don't, uh, I don't solicit donations for, for the park. Obviously, Yellowstone Forever has been a great partner. Um, they raised a record amount of money last year for the park, which went directly into many, many critical programs. And, you know, I, I always encourage people to learn about Yellowstone Forever's mission and how it supports uh, Yellowstone National Park. You know, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of the support, especially through their congressional members uh, in regard to, you know, what they can do directly is, is continue to support Yellowstone and, and, and all the recovery efforts we have in front of us in yeah. any way possible. Well, Cam, thanks for your time today and the update. It sounds like uh, you've been working 24-7, and I don't know when your man should get any sleep. <laughs> it's better now than it was three or four weeks ago, that's for sure. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll check in down the road and uh, ho hopefully um, see the winter season open uh, as normal as possible. Great. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to donate to the recovery effort, Yellowstone Forever, the park's nonprofit philanthropic partner, has created a resiliency fund to help where possible. You can find it at yellowstone.org. Next week, contributing editor Kim O'Connell is back from her summer vacation to Alaska and some of the national parks there, and will be here to discuss that great adventure. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.